to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau and I'm joined today by my colleague Catherine Savage who's a legal director in our disputes team. So today's episode is an admissions special. A bumper set of A-level grades has had a ripple effect of consequences into the higher and further education sectors. Let's start with those institutions who've been fortunate enough to find that they have an abundance of successful applicants, all enthusiastically waiting to start their university experience. But unplanned recruitment can have a number of consequences for institutions in terms of the adequacy of resources, staffing, facilities and accommodation. And this can affect not only the new cohort, but existing students too. Catherine, what are the legal issues that institutions need to worry about if there's a mismatch between student expectations and the reality that they find when they enrol? Oh, thanks, Mita. Um, well, I mean, the, the obvious one and the one that you and I discuss a lot um, is the rights that students have under the, the Consumer Rights Act. So if a student um, enrolls at a university um, in the expectation that, for example, they will receive a certain number of uh, staff to student ratio, that they will receive a certain number of direct contact hours and so on. And universities now find themselves unable to meet those commitments due to taking on too many uh, students this year. Uh, the risk for the university is that they will face claims under the Consumer Rights Act. Now, the remedies under the Consumer Rights Act where uh, the service does not conform to what the university promised at the outset is the right to repeat performance. Um, and in circumstances where that's not possible, um, it's the right to the price reduction. Um, now, you and I, Samita, have had number of conversations about how in circumstances can the court calculate um, what is appropriate in terms of the amount of a price reduction um, and, and, it, and it's very difficult to predict because there is no judicial guidance on the point um, it, it, every case will turn on its own facts it's supposedly it's linked to uh, what the student received compared to to what they were promised but how that can be calculated in circumstances where for example, a student was promised a tuition class of 20, but now they have a tuition class of 40, which has limited their access to their tutor or, or to resources in the library, course materials and so on. It's difficult, I would say, to predict. I don't know what you think on that, Smita. Yeah, I think one of the, um, the challenges we've had, because we frequently had institutions say to us, you know, what would you think? would be an appropriate price discount if these things happened, is that it's so specific to what the consumer wanted. I was always struck by the fact that um, in the explanatory memorandum to the Act, where it gives examples of the kind of things that could lead to a price reduction, it talks about traders who've said that they pay the living wage, and then it turns out that they don't pay the living wage, um, because that's something that matters to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about the sorts of promises that uh, universities and colleges will make about what's on offer, some of that is quite um, attractive to particular consumers. You know, if you have a real focus on employability uh, services or placement opportunities, and those become constrained because of the numbers you've got. Um, you could find that certain consumers and certain students are very badly affected by that. That was not what they wanted. So I think we're all kind of slightly navigating in the dark, aren't we, about what view a, a court would take there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. And then I mean, obviously, in addition to, to claims under the Consumer Rights Act, there are also obviously um, 
potential claims for for breach of contract, you're straightforward. Uh, you know, the university promised me something, I didn't receive it. Um, I've now suffered a loss. Now, I, I don't see these types of claims being as much of a concern because I think from a, uh, a student's perspective, it must be very, very difficult for a student to say, I was promised, you know, a, a class of 20 and I received a class of 30. And, and as a result, I haven't achieved the degree that I wanted. I'm less employable. I haven't, you know, reached the earning potential. I was going to earn the mega bucks, and now I'm unable to do that. And therefore, I'm entitled to claim my loss of earnings. I, I, I can't see that many students would be successful in bringing those types of claims. But I can see a circumstance where those types of claims are being threatened because we do see them. And I think... Um, there is there is that risk um, that th those types of claims might be threatened. I mean, one thing I was thinking earlier, I mean, the claims that I see a lot of in um, the litigation team acting for the education clients is um, disability discrimination claims. And you think how those services are now going to be stretched with the, uh, the numbers of students that are now um, coming in, um, you know, the chances of being more disabled students obviously increases and then the dis dis disability support teams, their services becoming stretched and not being able to perhaps provide the level of support that has previously been provided, perhaps exposes um, the universities to the increased risk of disability discrimination claims as well. And that's against a backdrop of those claims already being um, some of the most common that we see. I think that, that point about uh, the possibility of claims is a really interesting one, though, isn't it, Kat? Because we have, over the last couple of years, seen a range of things that have caused disruption to students and, and you know, possibly a mismatch between expectation and reality. I'm thinking here of, you know, industrial action, obviously mm. the pandemic. Um, and yet we haven't yet seen a surge in litigation or more particularly in the sort of class actions that I think... Um, at one point were, were really being seen as a big risk for the sector. And um, why do you think that is? Mm, well, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. A couple of years ago, I remember that um, certainly when the industrial action started, I'm thinking quite a bit before COVID, there were these firms that were advertising to recruit students to these really big, you know, group class actions in relation to consumer rights, you know, and uh, universities not providing what um, they had promised to provide as a result of the, um, the strike action. And I think at the time there was a real fear that, you know, huge claims were going to be, or certainly huge numbers of individual students would be bringing claims. And actually those didn't materialise. Now, the group litigation order that some of these firms were looking for at the time, I, I never really saw how that would work because, you know, every student has been affected differently from institution to institution. Everyone has different terms and conditions, even for on a year to year basis, different courses being affected in different ways and so on. Um, so, so I never could really see how the court could kind of run one case and then decide the merits of all of them based on in a, in a group um, litigation context. But I think the main thing has been that universities do seem to have dealt quite well internally with these large numbers of complaints. We've seen universities adapting bespoke complaints procedures to deal with them quickly, um, which seems to be fairly effective. Um, and also, of course, you know, there's a cost to bringing a, a county court claim against a, a university. There's an upfront court fee for that, uh, whereas the student complaints procedure is obviously free. 
Um, and in addition to that, there's always the risk that if a student loses, you know, it's quite a big thing to bring as an individual student to bring a, a claim against a, a university that's got much larger pockets and potentially exposing themselves to a cost risk. So we haven't quite seen the clamour to uh, rush to litigation that, that we've seen. But, you know, going forward, you could see again talking about resources being overstretched. I suppose there could be a risk that if complaints teams now become so overstretched that they're not able to deal with complaints as effectively as we've seen, um, then possibly there is a risk that that will then translate into claims down the line if students aren't feeling that their complaints are being dealt with, um, you know, efficiently, quickly, promptly, and students eventually become frustrated with the process. You could see a scenario where that might result in, in, in claims to court increasing. Although the courts themselves are rather overstretched, aren't they? So, well, quite. I mean, yeah. the students hope that the courts yeah. will deal with it more quickly than the internal complaints process, I'm afraid. But um, that, that's unlikely based on how slowly um, things are moving through the courts at the moment. Let's, um, let's move to the other end of the spectrum then. So um, one of the consequences of this rather um, hierarchical recruitment that's gone on in terms of numbers is that there will be courses, there will be places which haven't attracted enough um, students. And there we're probably going to be looking at some level of uh, course modification or cancellation. Um, and again, we've already talked about um, how students have that uh, rights based on how the course was described to them when it was advertised and changes have to be handled carefully. But I was just thinking, you know, we, we've been through this a few times now, obviously, uh, given the strike action, the pandemic, etc. Are there any main lessons or, or key risks that you think institutions need to think about when they are modifying courses because perhaps the numbers, you know, can't deliver a decent educational experience? Well, the main thing, I think, is having a really comprehensive, well-drafted, robust set of terms and conditions that are um, clear in the way that they're set out. They are brought to the student's attention um, at the very, very outset. Um, that Copies of them are retained so that you can clearly demonstrate what set of terms and conditions apply to what students because we have had experiences in the past where that can be can be difficult to follow um, and I think that that is the number one um, thing that universities can do to minimise the risk because that's the first question we would be asking is well what do your terms and conditions allow you to do um, and are those terms fair and so on. Um, it's also about really um, making sure that the students are engaged in the process that they're consulted if um, the university is considering making any changes to the course. Um, are those changes really necessary? Can they be avoided? Um, is there any kind of compromise that you can reach in dialogue with the students that can um, where, where, where you can reach some kind of agreement that they are happy with and they will live with and um, and you can reach some kind of um, agreement over the way forward. Um, and also just making sure that any change that is made is the, is the minimal necessary, really. Um, and, and I think, obviously, there will be circumstances where um, it's unavoidable. Um, obviously, no institution wants to be cancelling courses if they're undersubscribed. Um, and in those circumstances, the, the university might be exposing itself um, to risk. But hopefully that can be avoided with or minimised with, um, with a really good set of terms and conditions and and engaging with the student as much as possible. I think it's also interesting to think what role the regulators are going to play mm. in all this because um, 
we've not yet really seen um, how the Office for Students, for example, is going to approach instances where students are saying that, you know, the courses that were, were delivered were not as promised. At the moment, that's very much gone to the OIA, who I think have shown a willingness to reach some quite challenging decisions for universities about you know, the, the extent to which they could rely on those force majeure type provisions. And then the other regulator that's sort of lurking in the background here, obviously, at the moment is the Competition and Markets Authority and whether, you know, some of those terms and conditions that you're talking about, the, the rights to vary, etc., may be then drawn to the attention of the CMA if students feel um, that they weren't fair. Um, the last area that I thought we could talk about today in relation to admissions, uh, Catherine, is to do with capped courses. So these are things like medicine and dentistry, where unlike all the other courses where it's pretty much down to individual institutions, how many people they choose to recruit, um, these are ones where uh, the external, uh, sorry, the number is set externally by the Department for Health or, or, or whoever. Um, and I suppose um, from, from the point of view of the things we've talked about in the podcast, do you think that the involvement of that external number cap, does that help institutions in sort of defending claims and complaints from students? Or do you think it's largely irrelevant from the point of view of, of, of the consumer contract? Well, I mean, I suppose from the point of view of the consumer contract in terms of um, the arguments the university might want to run in any kind of defence to a claim um, that has been brought by them against a student, say, who has been told, you know, we're having to defer you for a year and they don't want to be deferred. Maybe the institution could argue that that contract was somehow frustrated by circumstances outside of its control. But I think really that might be a difficult argument to run in circumstances where the university knows there's a cap, they've offered more places than they can actually take in practice. Um, so, so I think that could be a problem. And I think we've seen, haven't we, institutions actually proactively offering students the, um, the, the money to defer. Uh, and in a way, I can see that that's sensible because there is otherwise the risk that a number of students will be saying, well, you didn't give me what I was promised. It's a breach of contract. I'm now a year delayed entering the job market or alternatively, I'm having to go to a different location and incur additional living arrangement fees for, for that. Um, so I can see that um, taking that proactive approach is, is perhaps um, sensible um, in circumstances where the university are una unable albeit due to circumstances possibly out of their control in terms of the caps, um, to one of their contractual obligations. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting argument about frustration. And I think it's, it raises this broader question, which is every individual um, student gets an individual contract for a place. But of course, these caps are global caps. So it's always kind of slightly perplexed me. How do you identify whose place is mm. no longer available? You know, what 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 criteria do we use to say, actually, you're the ones that that are outside the cap and the others are within it? And I think the other interesting thing to note about the numbers cap is at least that's an area where um, the departments do step in. The government departments do step in. So we know that, for example, the Department for Health is offering a sort of brokering service and making additional places available. What's interesting is, of course, that's not necessarily just the end of the story and it doesn't just fix the problem because you've still got to think about placements, you've still got to think about lab facilities and so on on campus. So instantly expanding 
those courses, even if the numbers increase, isn't really a very straightforward prospect. Mm. Well, Catherine, thanks very much. I think there's plenty of things to be thinking about there and uh, we'll have to wait and see um, if any of these issues become a reality. Let's hope not. Let's every let's hope that every student who starts their university uh, life this year gets a brilliant experience and graduates well. Um, so thanks very much for listening to today's podcast. We do hope you'll join us next time. And if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.